Hello. This video is the third excerpt from a longer podcast about the place of ideas in the landscape architecture design process. It's based on chapter three of City as Landscape, and I'll put the three parts together to make a 76 minute video, which seems a bit long for YouTube. Next, I'll have a go at a classification of the patterns we've been considering. The above examples of Friends of the Pattern Language were chosen from different areas of knowledge and can be conceived as structures, which is more fashionable term than patterns. But for designers, patterns is a more natural grouping than structures, I think. Patterns are of different ages and can be classified like geological formations using the terms primary, secondary, tertiary and quaternary, as shown in figure 17. The sequence is chronological. Primary patterns existed before man. Secondary patterns, like traces of Stone Age man, are the oldest signs of human life on Earth. Tertiary patterns, like cave paintings, can be very ancient. They're art. Quaternary patterns are more recent, of the type Alexander wrote. The four types of pattern can therefore be discussed in groups. Primary or natural patterns are found in the existing landscape, resulting from flows of energy, from geology, from the nature of materials, from the processes of growth and decay. They might be represented in words and numbers, but maps and drawings are likely to be the most useful format. In McHarg's map overlays include the primary patterns of the existing landscape. The emerging patterns of landscape ecology, discussed by Foreman and Gudrun, are of great importance. Dim Sylvia Crow's book on the pattern of landscape considers natural patterns from both geomorphological and aesthetic points of view. Secondary or human patterns are found in both urban and rural landscapes. They result from the behaviour of humans who adapt places to satisfy needs for food, shelter, transport, comfort and security. Tertiary or aesthetic patterns result from the artist's imagination or an aesthetic appreciation of nature. They may come from geometry, mathematics, decoration, representation, mythology, symbolism, allegory, metaphor, abstraction, philosophy, poetry, music and a narrative. There are creative artists with expertise in all these areas. And environmental designers can work with them and learn from them.
quaternary or archetypal patterns are tried and tested combinations of the other patterns. They are prototypes that have proved successful, like plant associations, house types, farm types and settlement types. Their place in outdoor design, which is a site-specific art, is as components. Like a sundial, no outdoor design can be exactly right for more than one point on the Earth's surface. Alexander's focus was on archetypal patterns, but as illustrated in the following examples, he does make use of the other pattern types. His patterns 64, 74 and 168 draw on natural and human patterns. Pattern 64 is pools and streams. It relates to natural patterns because we came from water, our bodies are largely water, and water plays a fundamental role in our psychology. Similarly, pattern 74, animals, states that animals are as important a part of nature as the trees and grass and flowers. And there is evidence that animals may play a role in a child's emotional development. And pattern 168, connection to earth, arises because a house feels isolated from the nature around it unless its floors are interleaved directly with the earth that is around the house. Alexander didn't like blocks of apartments. The pattern language avoids purely aesthetic patterns, though some patterns clearly do involve visual judgments. Number 249, ornament, for example, states that all people have the instinct to decorate their surroundings. Comparably, pattern 235, small panes, recommends users to divide each window into small panes because the smaller panes are, the more intensely windows help connect us with what's on the other side. Aesthetics are treated at greater length in a 1993 book by Alexander on the colour and geometry of Turkish carpets. Seeing them as a foreshadowing of 21st century art, Alexander wrote of the similarity of these carpets to what the world of Bach and Monteverdi is in the world of music a realm of pure structure in which the deepest human emotions can have their play. Dealing almost entirely with pattern and ornament, carpets are an exercise in colour and geometry.
Aesthetics were further analysed in Alexander's four volumes on the nature of order, published after this essay was written, from 203 to 4. The greatest strength of Alexander's pattern language lies in its imaginative appreciation of human patterns. They redirect designers' attention away from style and back towards human behaviour. For example, pattern 119 values arcades because they play a vital role in the way that people interact with buildings. And pattern 164 recommends street windows because a street without windows is blind and frightening and because it is equally uncomfortable to be in a house which bounds a public street with no window at all on the street. Some of the patterns derive from what an earlier generation of psychologists would have called instincts. Number 181, fire, observes that the need for fire is almost as fundamental as the need for water. And 100, number 129, common areas at the heart, states that no social group, whether a family, a work group or a school group, can survive without constant informal contact among its members. The converse of this proposition, from pattern 141, a room of one's own, is that no one can be close to others without also having frequent opportunities to be alone. Alexander's proposal for a teenager's cottage in pattern 154 could be part of an initiation rite. To mark a child's coming of age, transform his place in the home into a kind of cottage that expresses in a physical way the beginnings of independence. My conclusion to chapter three of City's Landscape and to this podcast is that the full set of patterns required for outdoor planning and design depends on the nature of the proposals that are to be made. There is no finite set of survey information that can be assembled before starting work. There is no one inescapable starting point for a design project. This is the fatal flaw in the SAD survey analysis design method. When making a new place, planners and designers must know what factors made the existing place how places can be changed and what makes people judge places as good 
or bad. Specialised vocabulary is therefore necessary. Patterns can use words, diagrams, models and drawings to describe complex processes and qualities. The language will not be symbolic like computer code, but nor will it be a predominantly spoken language. For planning and design, it is most likely to be diagrams supported by words. Many patterns will be appreciated by the general population. Others will be particular to special groups. Others will be unique to individuals. Words provide a common currency with which to interrelate different structural approaches to the design and analysis of place. Diagrams can have a similar role and are more readily transformed into designs. Structures reside in the environment, but they are visible only to people and animals that have reasons to look for them. Each situation can be analysed within different structural frameworks. Ideas are at the heart of the design process and lead on to surveys, to analyses and to designs. Patterns help designers to handle the complexity of environmental design and I recommend them. Hello, this is part two of a longer video on the place of ideas in the landscape architectural design process, based on chapter three of my book on City as Landscape. Part one discussed Christopher Alexander's pattern language, and part three will recommend a design method for using the different types of pattern. Part two this video outlines a range of structural pattern types. I've already published the full podcast and will put the full video on YouTube when it's ready. Next is a review of structural friends of the pattern language. The pattern language has abundant structural friends, which also happen to be its relatives. See figure 10. They are found in psychology, ecology, geomorphology, art, design, geometry, planning and other subjects too. Each of these disciplines identifies structures of a particular kind. The Oxford English Dictionary gives the following definition of structuralism which isn't a very easy concept. It defines it as 
Any theory or method in which a discipline or field of study is envisaged as combining elements interrelated in systems and structures at various levels. The structures and the interrelationships of their elements being regarded as more significant than the elements considered in isolation. Also, more recently, theories concerned with analysing the surface structures of a system in terms of its underlying structure. The OED goes on to give three uses of structuralism, which overlap. General structuralism, as in Piaget, linguistic structuralism, as in Saussure, and anthropological structuralism, as in Levi-Strauss. Christopher Alexander's theory of environmental structure, which led to his developing the pattern language, is close to being within the category of general structuralism. His use of the term language signifies that the patterns can discover friends in, in disciplines which have looked for patterns in surface structures, deep structures and superstructures. Knowledge of structural patterns, of their grammars and their vocabularies, helps one to deal with the complexity of environmental design and planning. So next, I'm going to review seven sets of friends of the pattern language, starting with psychological patterns. Psychology is the study of the psyche. Aiming to find out about the workings of the mind, modern psychology divides into a number of topics. Perception, motivation, emotion, learning, thinking, intelligence, personality and innate patterns. It's a large subject, which has often been dominated by individuals, and I'll mention a few of them. Carl Jung is one of the most important psychologists for landscape theory. He saw the psyche as an operational whole with three important levels. The conscious, the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. Consciousness is the only part of the mind that we know. The personal unconscious which was of great interest to Sigmund Freud, comprises all those experiences that are not recognised by the conscious part of the mind. Discovery of the collective unconscious was Jung's most important contribution to psychology and a significant influence on Geoffrey Jellicoe. It can be thought of as a reservoir of primordial images inherited from man's evolutionary past. As innate patterns, they form predispositions towards responding to the world in ways that were developed by our remote ancestors. Fear of the dark, of isolation, of separation from a refuge, come from countless generations of human experience. Jung believed that the collective unconscious 
could be thought of as a series of archetypes, which he painted. Among those he described, some related to living things, some to natural objects, and some to man-made objects. They included birth, death, power, magic, the hero, the wise old man, the earth mother, trees, the sun, wind, rivers, fire, animals, rings, tools and weapons. These archetypes are not images. They are patterns which became focused through experience. For example, every infant is born with a mother archetype and it becomes a definite image after experience of the individual mother's appearance and behaviour. Jung believed that symbols are the outward manifestation of collective archetypes and he therefore spent the latter part of his life analysing symbols, dreams, myths and art as a way of finding out about the collective unconscious. See figure 11. It's useful for creative artists and designers to understand symbols and their relationship to the unconscious mind. When Sir Geoffrey Jellicoe addressed the Architectural Association on his 90th birthday, he remarked that, You may wonder what I've been doing since I resigned as principal of this school 50 years ago. I would like to tell you, I have been exploring the unconscious. 50 years earlier, the AA school had been engulfed by abstract modernism. Angelica realised that if designers were to see their work as symbol-free, compositions of abstract lines, colours and patterns, they would be making a major departure from everything that their predecessors had done. So in turning back from vacantly abstract art, Jellicoe was one of the first postmodernists in landscape design. Gestalt psychology is also concerned with relationships. In German, the word Gestalt is used to describe the way a thing has been shaped, formed, configured or put together. In psychology, Gestalt is often translated as pattern. Gestalt psychology began in Austria and South Germany towards the end of the 19th century as a counter-movement to the practice of analysing experience into ever smaller elements. Typical phrases to summarise Gestalt psychology are the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and understanding the parts cannot provide an understanding of the whole. If a hundred light spots are projected onto a wall at one second intervals, they'll be meaningless. Projected at 0.003 second intervals, they can form a recognisable pattern. Similarly, a melody is more than a series of notes.
designers often engaged in creating forms that can be read as static patterns or as serial patterns, as Bernard Tumi argued. Piaget developed a theory of learning that relates to Gestalt psychology. He believed that thinking arises in situations where reflex actions and learned routines are insufficient. Piaget therefore identified separate stages in the development of a person's thinking. As children become adults, they learn to classify objects and to think in logical and experimental ways. By trial, error and experience, they formulate mental structures to deal with new situations. Piaget identified the psychological properties as wholeness, relationships between parts and homeostatic adjustment in the light of new experiences. Structural thinking of this type was applied to other fields. Noam Chomsky identified deep structures in language. And Christopher Alexander, who knew him at Harvard, applied Gestalt ideas to design theory. In his 1977 introduction to the pattern language, Alexander writes, Each pattern can exist in the world only to the extent that is supported by other patterns. The larger patterns in which it is embedded, the patterns of the same size that surround it, and the smaller patterns that are embedded in it. This is a fundamental view of the world. It says that when you build a thing, you cannot merely build that thing in isolation, but must repair the world around it and within it, so that the larger world at that one place becomes more coherent and more whole. And the thing which you make takes its place in the web of nature as you make it. This is a Gestalt approach to environmental design. Now let's consider landscape ecological patterns. Ecologists study relationships between living things and their environment. As a discipline, ecology was a reaction to the concentration of biologists and botanists on individual species just as Gestalt psychology was a reaction to the focus on individual perceptual elements. Both disciplines emerged in late 19th century Germany. Landscape ecology is a further development of ecology. Instead of examining individual habitats, the discipline looks at landscape structures and patterns. See figure 12. Foreman and Gaudran introduced the concept of landscape ecology by comparing the patterns in four agricultural landscapes. One in Wisconsin, 
one in a coniferous forest in Canada, one in a tropical rainforest in Colombia, and one in a Mediterranean landscape in southern France. Despite their differences, each is found to share a fundamental structure composed of patches, corridors, and a background matrix. Here's a quotation from Foreman and Gudrun's 1986 book on landscape ecology. The agricultural and coniferous landscapes had small distinct patches. The rainforest landscape indistinct patches and the Mediterranean landscape contained a mixture of large, small, distinct and indistinct patches. Geomorphic controls predominate in the rainforest. Natural disturbances and geomorphology in the coniferous forest. Human influence in the agricultural landscape and all three in the Mediterranean case. Corridors and linearity are most pronounced in the agricultural landscape and least evident in the rainforest and the coniferous forest. The background matrix is field in the agricultural landscape, forest in the next two, and hard to determine in the Mediterranean case. Landscape structures can be used to inform landscape planning and management decisions. If, for example, an ecological corridor is to contain a housing area, it is necessary to assess the interactions between the proposed new patch and its surroundings. We need to ask, is the corridor a route for wildlife movement? Does it contain flood water and protect downstream areas? Will the new patch cause a discharge of pollutants into adjoining patches? Landscape ecological patterns help in answering these questions and this type of question. Next is behaviour patterns. The study of animal behaviour developed in the first half of the 20th century with Conrad Lorenz as the pioneer. He applied the systematic methods of comparative anatomy to the study of animal and human behaviour. The subject became known as ethology. Lorentz's early work was on the process of imprinting by which young geese learn to follow their parents. Later, he argued that animals are genetically constructed to learn other behaviour patterns that are important for their reproduction and survival. Much can be learned about human nature from the study of observable behaviour patterns, as William H. White later did. In a 1963 book on regression 
in animals and humans. Lorentz speculates as to what conclusions might be drawn by a Martian who could observe human behaviour only through a telescope. Detailed behaviour studies, which are a way of studying the mind from the outside, have since had an impact on design and planning. It has been, for example, discovered that burglars are more likely to force entry to a house that has access to the rear windows. Other things being equal, vehicles and pedestrians will always take the shortest route between two points. The line they take is known to landscape theory as a desire line. In choosing a place for a picnic, people prefer to lay out their rug near the edge of a space. Pedestrian spaces are most likely to attract people when they are at the focal points of circulation networks. Access to water is the chief goal of recreational trips. Despite the existence of pets and supermarkets, people yearn for contact with wild animals and to collect wild food. Such behaviour patterns, which can be verified either by personal observation or by systematic data collection, are essential knowledge for those who plan outdoor space. So much for psychological patterns. Let's move on to story patterns. In the days when stories were passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation, details became blurred and structural patterns were laid bare. Vladimir Propp initiated the structural analysis of wonder tales, also known as fairy tales, which others have taken up. An amazing worldwide uniformity has been found in such tales, indicating archetypes. Their themes are hope and tragedy. Paradise is lost and paradise is found again. The Cinderella story is a classic example. She lived in paradise until her mother died. Then came trials, tribulations, and mysterious happenings, and eventually a happy ending. In other wonder tales, a young man sets off from home, encounters evil, remains steadfast, is helped by magic powers, passes tests, marries the king's daughter, and lives happily ever after. Various elements in these stories have symbolic content. Wood depicts the wholeness of the primordial state. Birds change into women. Dark forests symbolize terror. Animals represent the instinctive forces. Water may lead to a magic kingdom. 
Spiritual adventure is the subject of wonder tales. People identify comparable patterns in their own lives and discover more about their inner natures. Elements of wonder tales can also appear in the physical environment. Scandinavian cities, for example, are filled with statuary, but only one of them is world famous. The Little Mermaid in Copenhagen, shown in figure 13, was inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's tale of that name. She is beautiful in herself, but it is her position on the water's edge, consequential upon the story, and exposing her to sea, sun, wind, tides and frost that so greatly enhances her appeal. She is the pitiful creature who rescued a prince, fell in love with him, died when he married a mortal, and turned into foam. She is part of an exceedingly powerful pattern system. She is not in the crude phrase that critics apply to misplaced public sculptures, a turd in a plaza. Next is geomorphological patterns. It is now accepted by almost everyone that the world evolved by slow degrees over an immense period of time. Geomorphological patterns result from the natural processes that made the world. Heating, cooling, erosion, deposition, wave action, water flow, air flow and others. Some of these patterns can be seen with the human eye at ground level. We love to gaze at the sand patterns on a beach or the patterns formed by rock. Figure 14. Seabirds, though all have the optical capacity to detect such patterns, will only see patterns if they're important to their feeding or breeding habits. Sylvia Crow wrote about visible landscape patterns as seen by humans in The Pattern of Landscape. Uh, 1988 book. Other natural patterns can be detected with special equipment, including telescopes, satellites and microscopes. Remote sensing can reveal the distribution pattern of a mineral on the Earth's surface. High-power lenses used with polarised light can reveal the internal patterns of rock crystals. The Hubble telescope can photograph stars that ceased to exist before our sun came into existence. Geomorphological patterns are traces of the forces that made the Earth and which continue to shape its evolution. Environmental designers benefit functionally and aesthetically from understanding geological patterns. Next, 
growth patterns. Darcy Thompson was interested in the relationship between mathematics and the generation of form. He wrote in 1961 that the harmony of the world is made manifest in form and number and the heart and soul of all the poetry of natural philosophy are embodied in the concept of mathematical beauty. This relationship, which must be of interest to designers, is beautifully illustrated by the nautilus shell, which grows as a geometrical progression. Next, visual patterns. Asked to say what pattern means, most people will think first of visual patterns. In a 1974 book on the language of pattern, four Western designers write about their interest in Islamic patterns. As students, they had learned to regard pattern as superficial decoration of form and as form dictated by function. But in the body of their book, they examine the use of numbers and mathematical systems in design. Transformation is used as a term to describe the process of creatively transposing a pattern from one context to another, making use of changes of scale dimension and viewpoint to generate fresh perceptions. The Vedic square, an arrangement of numbers shown in figure 16, was transformed into lines, planes, brickwork, glazed tiles, garden plans, buildings and even town plans. So the authors of the language of pattern conclude that patterns structure our thinking and pattern is the structure of mind. Therefore, to evolve our knowledge of pattern is also to evolve ourselves. Next, design patterns. Designers have used pattern books for centuries. The design ideas of the Italian Renaissance were circulated in Northern Europe by means of pattern books. And these books influenced metalworkers, plasterers, furniture makers and other craftsmen. Most of the houses in Georgian London were adapted from architectural pattern books. But as 19th century romanticism and the cult of the individual reached their heights, it came to be thought that there was something morally disreputable, if not indictable, about copying from the work of others. All praise was heaped upon the heroic innovator. Pattern books became despised. <laughs> 